This morning we're continuing our series in Romans 7. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans 7, starting in verse 13. We're going to look at three tensions related to this passage. Now, tension is the act of stretching or straining. You can have physical tension, like a rubber band being stretched. You can have emotional tension. You have a lot going on in your mind. It's being stretched in a couple different directions. There can be tension between individuals or groups as there's a relationship that's been strained there. So there's tension. This morning, we're going to look at three tensions related to this passage. The tension surrounding the text, the tension within the text, and then the tension within us. But before we get there, I want to show you a visual example of what tension looks like. I don't know if you saw this, but there was recently a viral video challenge where cruel parents uh, would do this to their children. They would record their kids with a bowl of candy in front of them, and then the parents would leave for a minute and come back and say, you can have the candy when I come back. And in all these videos that I watched, and I watched a lot of them, you could see the tension within the kid's face. They wanted to do what was right, but they also really wanted the candy. And some kids would give into that tension right away and, and eat the candy without hesitation. Other kids would, would pick it up and smell it or look at it and then eat it. And some kids would wait until their parents came back. And I thought that was a good example of tension, showing, a kid, or showing an example of a kid who wants to do something but can't. It's a good example for our text, but I didn't want to just explain it to you. I figured you should see an example. So being the cruel parent that I am, we subjected our two-year-olds to this. So this is our our twin two-year-olds doing the candy challenge. Check it out. Here's a treat for you. But mommy, it wants to share it with you, okay? Mommy wants to share it with you, so I'm going to leave it right here. No, don't touch it yet. Don't touch it yet. Okay, mommy's going to be right back. I'll be gone one minute. And now come back, and when I come back, you can have your treat, okay? Okay. Don't touch it, and don't eat it until Mommy comes back. Okay. Be right back. Could you see it? Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I will take the credit for that, my parenting abilities. Could you see the tension in their face? They, they wanted to do what's right, but they also really wanted the candy. And shout out to Megan, who was on the right, for helping her sister obey. But that's, that's a different sermon illustration. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 7 if you're not there already. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire passage so you can see what we're, we're working with this morning. And then we'll get into the tensions of the text. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The first tension that we're going to look at this morning is the tension surrounding the text. You may not know this, but there's been a lot of debate over the years about this passage. Big picture, how are we to understand what Paul is saying here? I want to discuss this briefly and then move into the text, but I think it's important that we understand how this passage has been interpreted throughout the years of church history. It's important as believers that we keep our mind engaged in the Christian life. Studying a difficult passage like this takes time and effort, but it's worth it to grow in our faith. There are two main interpretations of this text throughout the years. Either Paul is describing his life as a current mature believer, or he's not. He's describing his life before he became a Christian, or even when he was a Christian, but was still immature in his faith. I want to show you three reasons that I think Paul is describing his current life as a mature believer in this passage. First, Paul's language. He uses first-person, present-tense language all throughout the text. He writes I, me, or my about 40 times in this passage. He also uses present-tense verbs, which stands in contrast to earlier in the chapter, where he used mostly past-tense verbs to talk about his life before he became a Christian. So the most natural way to read and interpret this text is to see it as a contrast between Paul talking about his life before he became a Christian in the previous passage and talking about his life as a current believer in our passage today. Second, Paul's delight. Look at verse 22. He says this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul says he delights in God's word, something that a non-Christian would not say. And not only does he delight in it, but he delights in it in his inner being. This refers to Paul's truest self, his renewed, redeemed heart. He uses this phrase a couple other times in the New Testament where he's clearly talking about a believer. Third, Paul's conclusion. Look at verse 24 again. He says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul has this incredible climactic moment in the text where he is building up to this question. He says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he exclaims, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's a perfect end to the chapter. If he had transitioned there into Romans 8, where he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It seems like a natural segue for him to go from talking about not doing what he wants to do, to being delivered through Christ, to not having any condemnation. He's free from this struggle. But that's not what he says. He says, I don't do what I want to do. I need deliverance. Thank God for Jesus. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. He goes back to the same idea that he serves God, and yet he struggles with sin. He's been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and yet he lives in a sinful body. So if Paul is writing this text as a mature believer, 
What is he saying? What point is he trying to make? The second tension that we're going to look at this morning is the tension within the text. It's this tension between the spirit and the flesh, between good and evil, between the good that Paul wants to do and what he actually does. You probably heard it as we read through the text the first time, but let's walk through it again and look at how Paul describes this tension, starting in verse 13 again. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul starts this passage by wrapping up an argument that he'd been making in the previous verses. We looked at last week how Paul had died because of the law. So he asked the question, did the law, that which is good, bring death to me? By no means. He says, absolutely not. Paul emphasizes again that it was sin that produced death. The law is good. It shows what sin is, and sin brings death. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Again, Paul acknowledges that the law is good. It's spiritual. It's from the Holy Spirit. It reflects God's character. But here is the first time we see this tension within Paul. The law is spiritual, but Paul is of the flesh. The law is good, but Paul is not. What does it mean to be of the flesh? Other translations use the word unspiritual. The law is spiritual, but Paul is unspiritual. John MacArthur defines flesh as man's unredeemed humanness, that remnant of the old self which will remain with each believer until they receive their glorified body. The flesh is our old self which will always be a part of us until we die or until Jesus comes back. Notice that Paul says here he is of the flesh and not in the flesh, which is how he described unbelievers in verse 5 of this chapter. The flesh, his unredeemed self, is always a part of him, but it doesn't define him anymore. What does it mean that he's sold under sin? This is a phrase that most theologians will point to if they believe that Paul is writing about his life before he became a Christian. Paul says earlier in chapter 6 that believers are no longer enslaved to sin. So if he's being sold under sin here, is he saying that he's not a believer? No, what he's saying is that even though he's not controlled by sin anymore, he still acts like it sometimes. He's not enslaved, but he still feels the effects of his former slavery. In Galatians, another letter that Paul wrote, he says it like this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As believers, we've been set free from the slavery of sin, and yet sometimes we find ourselves submitting again to it. That's not to say we can lose our salvation and become slaves to sin again. It's just that sometimes we practically live like we are still living under the yoke of slavery. There's this tension here between his flesh and his spirit. Paul's redeemed heart is not fully redeemed yet, and his heart of sin still wants to be enslaved to sin. Later in Galatians 5, Paul writes about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And he describes it like this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. They keep us from doing what we want to do. This sounds like Romans 7 here. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul doesn't understand what he's doing. He knows what he should do, but he doesn't do it. Not only that, but he does what he hates. Maybe you can relate to this. You know what you should do, but you do the opposite. And afterwards you think, why did I just do that? I hate that I just did that. 
You want to know the times when I'm most consistently sinful in my life? It's at my kid's bedtime. Maybe you can relate to this. My wife and I have four daughters. You probably can't relate to that. Uh, Mackenzie is four. Hannah and Megan, you saw earlier, are two. Uh, And Kelsey is seven months. And there's something about putting three toddlers to bed at the same time that brings out the unredeemed part of my heart. I can become impatient, irritable, selfish, and prideful. I don't know if you know this, but uh, toddlers don't always do what you want them to do. Um, And we sometimes end up with one kid sleeping, one kid jumping on their bed, and one kid naked and peeing on the floor. And I, I want to love them, but it's hard sometimes. And the unredeemed part of me thinks, how dare these kids not listen to me when I tell them that they should sleep? And after they all finally go to sleep, I look at their sleeping faces and I think, I hate that I just acted that way. I hate that I don't love my children like I want to all the time. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Again, Paul points out that the law is good. It's not the law's fault that he can't do what he wants to do. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. When Paul sins, when we sin, it's because we have sin dwelling inside of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our sins. Romans 14, 12 says that we will all give an account before God. We're still responsible for our sins, but when we do sin, it's because we have sin dwelling inside of us. Our sin isn't coming from our new redeemed self. It's coming from our old unredeemed flesh. Paul acknowledges that there's nothing good in him. And then he clarifies, in my flesh. Yes, he's been saved. Yes, he has the Holy Spirit living inside of him. But in his flesh, there's nothing good in there. There's nothing good in his fallen, sinful nature. There's this tension between his redeemed self and his unredeemed flesh. He goes on in verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Here we see a shift as Paul goes from talking about doing what he hates to not even being able to do what he wants. In verse 18, he says, I want to do good, but I can't. And in verse 19, he says, I want to do good, but I don't. He's not saying that he never does anything right. It's not like Paul is this terrible person who's still hunting Christians or kicking puppies, and then he sits down to write the Bible. He still does things that are good, but not to the extent that he wants. His heart desires to do what's right all the time, but he can't. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He goes back to the same idea of not doing what he wants because of the sin that dwells within him. There's an unredeemed part of him that's in tension with his new redeemed heart. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Here, Paul uses the word law again, but he's not referring to the Old Testament law like he was earlier. He simply means that it's a principle that he finds to be true. He wants to do what's right, but he finds that evil is close at hand. In Genesis 4, we see Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. And Cain brings an offering of of fruit off the ground, whatever he can find, while Abel brings his best. He brings the firstborn of his flocks. And God is pleased with Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And it says that Cain was very angry. 
And in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. Evil is close at hand. There's this image here of a lion crouching, waiting to pounce and to kill. And God tells Cain that he has to rule over this evil, that he shouldn't let it attack him. But Cain doesn't listen. And as you probably know, in the next verse, it says, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Sin was crouching at Cain's door and Cain opened it. Evil was close at hand and he let it inside. Now you may be thinking, well, I'm not as evil as Cain. I would never do what he did. Is evil really close at hand in my life? Or is that just for evil people? I think there are three ways that evil can be close at hand in our lives when we want to do what's right. Our evil can be purposeful, it can be passive, or it can be prideful. Here's what I mean by that. Take reading the Bible, for example. That's a good thing that you should desire to do. I want to read the Bible because I know it's right. But evil is close at hand when I want to do right, and it can attack me in a few different ways. First, I could purposely choose evil. I could look at my Bible and think about reading it, and then actively choose to do something sinful instead. I could also passively choose evil. I could get so busy with with school or with work or with family that I forget to read my Bible, and in doing so, I, I passively choose what's evil. Or I could become prideful in my evil. I don't mean that I become proud of my evil choices. I mean that I could become prideful over my own goodness. I want to do what's right, so I read the Bible, and then I become prideful over my own goodness, and I look down on other people who forgot to read their Bible that day. And I allow evil to creep into my heart as I think of myself more highly than I should, and I look down on others. Do you see how evil is close at hand? Even when I do what's right, when I read my Bible, evil is close at hand and is waiting to attack. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, Paul is writing this as a mature believer. He delights in the law of God in his inner being. He knows deep down in his truest self that God's law is good, but he has this war going on inside of him. In verse 22, he says he sees it in his members. He just means in his body. He sees in himself another law waging war. Now this time when he uses law, it's again not referring to the Old Testament, and he's also not referring to a principle. He's referring to a power. There's this power in his body waging war against the power in his mind. And we see again this tension within Paul and within believers. He delights in God's law, but he has sin inside of him. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here we have Paul's exasperated cry after thinking about this tension within himself. He wants to do good, but he doesn't. He wants to do good, but he can't. He delights in the law of God, but he has sin inside of him. He wants to be free, but he can still be enslaved to sin. Wretched man that I am. Another translation says it like this. What a miserable person I am. Warren Wearsby comments that the Greek word here for wretched indicates a person who is exhausted after battle. Paul is exhausted from this battle that's going on inside of him. Maybe you felt this way. What a miserable person I am. 
Maybe you feel this way after you sin. There's one sin that you just keep coming back to, and every time you do it, you hate it. And you think, I'm a miserable person. I'm exhausted from this battle. Notice a couple things about Paul's question. First, he says, who, who will deliver me? It's not what will deliver me. He knows that it's, it's not a program. It's not a three-step solution. It's not how will I deliver myself. It's not about more willpower. It's not about better habits in his life. It has to be someone. Notice also that he says, who will deliver me? It's a future deliverance that Paul is confidently looking forward to. He knows that someday he will be delivered from his sinful body. But now while he's on earth, he still lives in this tension. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul recognizes that deliverance can only come from God through Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can deliver Paul from his sin, and he's the only one who can deliver us from our sin. Paul's made it clear all throughout Romans that we're all born sinners, that we've all inherited a sin nature from Adam. We have sin dwelling inside of our flesh, and there's nothing good that we can do on our own. And our sin separates us from a perfect, holy, and just God. And we need someone to take away the punishment for our sin so that we can be made right before God. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is that person. He took the punishment for our sins and he justified us. He made us right before God. And someday we'll be fully delivered from our sinful bodies. Then Paul concludes, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul concludes this chapter by summarizing the struggle that he's been having within himself, the tension within himself. He says, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The final tension that we're going to talk about this morning is the tension within us. As we read and studied this passage, what tension do you feel in your own heart and your own life? First, if you're not a believer in Christ, I think there's a couple things that you could feel after reading this passage. You could say, who cares? I don't desire to do what's right. I don't care when I do what's wrong. And it's destroying your life because you're surrounded by broken relationships and you only care about yourself. And your poor decisions just lead to more poor decisions. And the consequences of your choices aren't leading to a fulfilling life. If that's you this morning, I pray that you realize that you need Jesus to deliver you from death. We saw a couple weeks ago in Romans 6 that the wages of sin, the punishment for our sin is death. So if you haven't put your faith in Christ, the punishment that you deserve for your choices is eternal separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. It's all about the good news that God loves you, sent his son to die for you, and that if you accept his free gift, you'll have life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Put your faith in him and begin your relationship with Christ today. I think you could also be an unbeliever and you could read this text and you could say, I want to do what's right, but I don't need Jesus to tell me how to do that. I'm a good person. I treat others with respect. I try to do the right thing. If that's you, can I tell you that you aren't good? No matter how hard you try, no matter how nice you think you are, Paul makes it clear here and throughout Romans that we all have this sin nature. We all have sin dwelling inside of us. It prevents us from being good, and we can never meet the standard that God sets. So if that's you, my encouragement is the same. Put your faith in Christ. Realize that you will never meet the standard that God requires. 
Ask him to forgive you of your sins and start your relationship with him today. If you are a believer, I think the tension for us is between pride on one hand and discouragement on the other. On one side, you may read this passage and become prideful. You may think, even if you would never say this out loud, this passage doesn't describe me. I can do what's right. I don't do what's wrong. If your takeaway from this passage is, I'm glad I'm not like Paul, you are missing the entire point. You are like Paul. You do have this struggle inside of you between the spirit and the flesh. And quite frankly, we're all probably worse than Paul. Here's a man who wrote 13 books of the Bible, the word of God, who says he has this struggle, this tension within himself. Be cautious of reading this passage and feeling pride about your own ability to do what's right. If that's you, if the tension for you is pride in your heart, spend some time this week reflecting on this passage and asking God to reveal the sin in your life. In Psalm 139, David asks this of God, Search me, O God, and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. If you're not wrestling with sin in your life as a believer, if you would have trouble even identifying a sin struggle, this verse needs to be your prayer. Ask God to point out sin in your life so that you can begin to fight against it. Or ask your spouse or your parents or someone who knows you well how you've sinned recently, and I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you. On the other hand, I think you could read this passage and become discouraged. It could be easy to to read a passage like this and be discouraged by the fact that we will always struggle with sin in this life. If that's you this morning, and the idea that you have sin dwelling inside your body and will always have sin inside of you here on earth is discouraging, let me encourage you by saying this. You should be struggling with sin. You should be having a godly battle with sin in your own heart and your own life every single day of your life. Here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that you should just accept defeat and let sin continue to beat you up your entire life. I don't mean that you should just give up and stop trying to defeat your addictions or your issues or your your sin problems. Don't say, oh, well, I'm always going to struggle with this. What's the point? I don't mean that you should just feel kind of bad about your sin and then move on as if it didn't happen. Here's what I do mean. You should be struggling. You should be fighting to defeat sin in your life. Realize that it's a lifelong battle, that you won't have final victory until you reach heaven. But keep working on it. Keep struggling through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, which we'll study next semester, is all about the Holy Spirit who empowers us to fight against sin. You don't have to fight against sin on your own. If you're a believer, you have the power of God helping you fight sin in your life. Galatians 5.16 says this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're walking with the Spirit and relying on the Holy Spirit, like Matt talked about last week, you're going to continue to win battles against the desires of your flesh. Struggle with sin in your life by letting it break your heart every time you give in to it. Struggle with sin by identifying what sins you are most drawn to and fighting against it. Struggle with sin by talking about your struggles in your connection group or with your spouse or with a counselor. Struggle with sin by putting practical measures in place to remove temptation from your life. John Owen famously said it like this, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
If you aren't actively struggling and fighting and trying to kill sin in your life, it will try to kill you. Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't let him. Struggle with sin in your life every day. Now, if the tension in your own heart is discouragement after reading this, let me encourage you with three reasons why this struggle is a good thing. First, the struggle proves that you're alive. If you were still dead in your sins, if you weren't a believer, you wouldn't care that you were struggling with sin. The fact that you care, the fact that it bothers you when you don't do what you want to do, proves that you have a desire to serve God. If you can say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then you can also say with him, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a sermon on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said this, Thus, dear friends, I have showed you that there is a conflict within. And let me congratulate you if it is a conflict. The ungodly know no such inward warfare. They sin and they love it, but where there is spiritual conflict, the grace of God is present. While I sympathize with your sorrow, I congratulate you that you feel it, for this is one of the marks of a child of God. Where there's spiritual conflict, where there's struggle in your own heart and your own life over sin, the grace of God is present there. The struggle proves that you're alive. Second, the struggle proves that you're growing. The more that you grow in your faith, the more you're going to grow in your own awareness of sin. The bigger God becomes in your life, the more clearly you'll see all the things that you do that are contrary to his nature. So an increased awareness of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you're sinning more. It could just mean that you're growing in your awareness of sin. We see this in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians, one of the first books that Paul writes, he calls himself the least of the apostles. He considers himself unworthy to be called a disciple of Jesus because he had persecuted Christians. He views himself as worse than the 12 people that walked with Jesus. In the middle of his ministry, Paul writes Ephesians, and he calls himself the least of all the saints. He considers himself the worst of all believers. And at the end of his ministry, Paul writes 1 Timothy and says that he is the worst of all sinners. He goes from saying he's the worst apostle to the worst Christian to the worst of all sinners. Why? Did he actually become more sinful as he got older? I don't think so. Again, this is someone that God used to write scripture. Paul's awareness of his own sinfulness and his appreciation for grace increased the more that he grew in his faith. He recognized more and more that he was a sinner in need of a savior. So if you look back at where you were as a believer last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you think, I wish I would have grown more. I'm still struggling with this sin in my life. Be encouraged by the fact that your growing awareness of sin is an indication of spiritual growth. The struggle proves that you're growing. Third, your struggle proves that you're not finished yet. Believers should always be struggling with sin because it proves that God is not finished with us here yet. Paul writes in Philippians 1, he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is going to continue to work in you, continue to sanctify you, to make you more like his son until the day of completion. Your struggle proves that you're not finished yet here on earth. God is still working in you and will continue to work in you until you meet Jesus face to face. So have a godly struggle with sin every day in your life until you, the day that you meet Jesus and the struggle will all be over 
and it'll all have been worth it. So I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're more naturally drawn to pride or to discouragement after reading this passage. I know for me that it can, it can change from day to day or from hour to hour. As I walk with the Spirit and struggle against sin, I can become prideful when I have victories and then become discouraged the next moment when I mess up. There's a good chance that you're going to feel both this week. You'll win some battles against sin and you may lose some others, but keep fighting. Keep struggling with sin in your life. So as we conclude our series on the first part of Romans, let me close with this quote from Tim Keller. It's been used before in this series, and it summarizes Romans well. He says this, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.